Welcome back to Stories Out of Time and Space. I'm your regular host, Scott Weatherly, and uh, you can refer to me as S. Um, for now, and I'm also, as always, joined by Julian, who we shall just refer to as J. Uh, but we're not doing Men in Black, though. I just realised that was going really going on a Men in Black route. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, we are doing uh, Blade Runner 2049, the 2017 Denis Villeneuve sequel uh, to the original Blade Runner film. And, uh, yeah, it's gonna, I think it's going to be an interesting one. Uh, this was a big film. Uh, this was a big film that allegedly flopped, um, but still gets Did talked about quite a bit. Well, I mean, it's all it's all rel- like, you know, what constitutes a flop or not? I mean, yes, this was seen as a big flop. I was looking; yeah. its budget was somewhere between one fifty and one eighty five billion. Mm-hmm. Uh, its box office was two sixty seven point five. Right, mm. so you know, what is that? A multiplier of like one point five? You really want three? Yeah. Um, but, you know, let's consider like, you know, Man of Steel's multiplier isn't that much better. And they did a whole universe based on it. And if you want to hear our, before we even get started on talking about this, if you want to hear our ideas for how you would expand this as a much wider universe, go check out our Patreon, uh, www.patreon.com slash 20cgmedia. Uh, the links are down below because we have done the shorts, the prequel shorts that were done for this um, 2022 blackout, 2036 next dawn and 2048 nowhere to run. Uh, we've done those as exclusive Patreon content. And we actually talk about how we would have expanded those and 2049 would have probably come a lot down the line, but some of the stories that we would tell in the uh, wider universe. So if you like what Julian and I do on this, and especially when we go off on and actually, save Hollywood and create brand new stories and stuff, go check out our Patreon because it's a fantastic episode. Anyway, sorry. Back I'm to right. the main feed. Um, Sorry, cheap pop there. So, <laughs> No, yeah, absolutely. Uh, when you're not performing your duties, do they keep you in a little box? Cells. <laughs> What's it like to hold the hands of someone you love? Interlinked. Interlinked. Yeah, I mean... Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't know. With this thing, it was considered a flop. They actually declared it a flop. And as you said, sort of like this, 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 what is a flop? One of the things that I thought was interesting, I went back and I had a look at some reviews. Because um, I, I will get into how, how I feel about this film. But I was curious to think, well, how was this film reviewed at the time? It did relatively well. It was very heavily oh, yeah. critically, you know, received. It's on eight. Through the roof. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. It's, it's universal acclaim. It's an 8.0 on IMDb. Rotten Tomatoes has got it sort of really high. Like cr- Critically, this film did really well. But one mm. of the themes that kept creeping out of those interviews, those things were, is it too long? Does anybody else remember Blade Runner, the first film? That was this constant thing of like, well, it's a sequel to something from 30 years ago, this legacy sequel idea. Like, mm-hmm. But it's not, it's not as in the mind or in the zeitgeist as... 
you know, some other franchises. I mean, you know, the year after this, the Halloween sequel to the first film came out, but there'd obviously been a whole bunch of other slasher films in the mindset and it's all this other stuff. There was just seemed to be this real concern, even in these critical reviews, that we don't think this is going to play, although it's very, very good, because people don't remember or have not, as a generation that has not seen Blade Runner. And I think that definitely seems to play into this film. Um, yeah, how does how does it affect the film itself? I mean, definitely, I remember everyone saying it's stylish, it's slow, it's asking a lot of mm-hmm. viewers to sit through, uh, which is funny because you know, I mean, it's it's nearly three hours. That's become like standard. I don't yeah. know how. <laughs> I don't want to, you know. I'd rather gouge my eyes out than watch Thanos for three hours, but that's just me. But, you know, um, you know, that was a big part of the the press. I mean, it seemed that, yeah, everyone remembered Blade Runner, mm-hmm. but was that going to be a big box office draw, right? Um, it's not like people were clamoring for a sequel or something. Um, you know, you mentioned Halloween, but there'd been an intervening 23 movies or so. Um, <laughs> 106. Yeah, I mean, there was 106. <laughs> yeah, you're not wrong. I mean, it was. It's clearly, a, it's clearly a thing. But weirdly, I think the press saying some of these things almost made it a self-fulfilling prophecy that this film wasn't going to be the the big blockbuster or the 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 big film it's going to be. Um, because this came out. I mean, this came out at the height of the Marvel, the MCU. Um. And a lot of those headlines as well, as you are rightly saying, were like, oh, this is the thinking man sci-fi. This is gonna, you know, this mm. is gonna challenge you and this other stuff. And it's not Mar- this isn't the this isn't the popcorn of Marvel and stuff. And I think almost by declaring that, people went, Oh, well, I could go watch three hours of Thanos or I could watch this. And unfortunately, the vast majority went and watched three hours of Thanos with their kids. Um but I do, I, you know, we'll get into this. And it's it's weird. I just thought these what reading these reviews, I was almost like, there's praise, but they're almost like edging their bets to see, oh, this isn't going to yeah. do well, which was really weird to see in these in these sort of like, and even the Guardian review. I read the Guardian review and stuff. Mm-hmm. They were like, it's really good. Don't think it's going to work. And you're just like, wow, that's really weird to be. You sort of like it, but you're not backing it. If you know what I mean, which I thought was bizarre. Well, I think it, it gets to a very good point, which is the way we talk about critics and we talk about like the intelligentsia, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, especially in our two countries, this is not as true in, say, France or Germany, but especially in our two countries, we live in anti-intellectual societies mm-hmm. uh, where we call, uh, you know, we make fun of people with degrees. We call uh, at the same time, we expect everybody to get a bachelor's. We call... Um, you know, the university's uh, ivory towers, you know, yeah. like removed from real life, which is so dumb as if they don't have kids in daycare to pick up and, you know, yeah. everything else and a mortgage to pay. Um, and they're not living high on the hog. Right. I mean, corporate culture is a lot more, you know, yeah. an ivory tower. Right. Um, you know, in the CEO level for sure. Mm. But um, but we love that and make, you know, you know, succession and shows about that, um, Wall Street, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, and then, you know, critics, it's like, oh, yeah, well, screw the critics. I like these movies that are fun, which, again, you and I will defend. Mm. You know, we've talked many times about guilty pleasures and whether that's the right term, but we're both in favor of just movies that are fun. Mm. We'll own that. They, they definitely say, have a place. I love a lot of them. We've, we both but, sat, and, sat and enjoyed Howard the Duck. <laughs> absolutely. And, yeah. and, and praised it. Mm. But, you know, I think that the critics, what they're really saying is, this is a great movie, but I don't have confidence in the American people or the British people to go see a great movie because yeah. what they really want are stupid movies. Mm-hmm. And they're right. And if they really were... Um, as much of like, oh, the critics is as much of a like cabal controlling society and telling us what to do. They would say, stop going to the stupid movies and yeah. make <laughs> make a place in your life for stuff like this, mm-hmm. because there isn't much of a place for it. And that's one of the things that I personally love about this movie and find so refreshing. And to a lesser extent, Dune, you know, uh, and Arrival and stuff like that, and Chris Nolan is that you know there is some kind of place carved out in our culture for something for adults, something for thinking people that is not just a Chuck E. Cheese animatronic show of a movie. No, I agree. I I 100% agree. And I think, you know, it's uh, going back to last week's episode, talking about um, hard to be a God. And, you know, yes, I wasn't as enamored with that film. (laughs) You know, we discussed the whole thing about art versus commerce and all that kind of stuff. But I won't deny that having watched that film, like I feel like, yeah, I, as I said to you, I thought it was a piece of art, and I, you know, it was it was worth watching. Like it was challenging, and it 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 made me think and experience things. Like a, I got a visceral reaction from watching that film, and I think there's there's not only a place for that. If you if you say that you are a lover of film, you know, then you almost have an obligation to to at least try these films. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a um, I, I, I'm trying not to go on a, a rant here, but I, I may end up doing it. There's there's a weird thing of sort of um, the the trash stratum praising the sort of like you know the real sort of like B movies and and these sort of like you know um, older films, which is fine. And again, like you and I have watched some of these sort of like old B movies and, and kung fu films and action films and sci-fi films, and we'll go, yeah, that's great, we enjoy those. But they get put on a bit of a pedestal as a sort of a, a, a sign of the times. Quentin Tarantino does this, and it drives me mad. I think he's one of the most overrated directors ever. But um, and I find that he does this, and he'll be like, "Oh yeah, this is this," and it's 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 real sort of like Grindhouse is amazing and stuff. And you go, "Yeah, it's fun," but it's not. You know that you should try that, but you've also got to re- recognize that there are these other films that you should definitely be sat and going. Yeah, I'm. I'm going to sit through this, and I'm going to try it, and I'm going to push myself to to you know consider these other films. And I think, and weirdly, these are the ones that get pushed to the side and ignored. Um, and and it, it does it frustrates me as well because you know, and I I can be, I'd say like an anti snob, but like let's say a, a pop culture or a trash stratum mm. snob at times. Um, I collect you know special editions of of. You know, trashy movies. Trashy movies. I yeah, Yeah. I I do that. But I'm right. I'm also you know, I also want to sit down and watch. I've recently you know one of those I've I've recently bought Naked Lunch, and I'm going to sit down. I'm going to because that film's going to challenge me. Like you know, I think that's what we should be doing. But and I sorry, I'm just going to be wrong. But that's why I think this film sits in this area. Like it's it's 
from the opening of this film, you sort of know that this, this film's going to be different. It's over three hours long, and the trailer sort of, even the trailer for this film tells you, like, this is what you're getting into a little bit. Come and do I think, it. I think it's 243. 243, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Almost, almost three hours. But yeah. Yeah, but, you know, I do think that this is... So, I mean, this is much more sort of my personal cup of tea, right? Mm. And I and I think this like kind of film, uh, you know, the Chris Nolan, you know, sort of thing, maybe a little smarter, a little more artsy than that, is sort of like my happy, perfect place. Um, the French, if you talk to the French about uh, movies, they will say like, France is really good at producing artsy movies that demand a lot of people, right? Mm -hmm. um, um, you know, America is really good at producing absolute schlock that's really entertaining, but you can, you to call it art is generous, you know? Um, but even the, but the French will even say what they like the most is that kind of Steven Spielberg, you know, kind of like, um, you know, Chris Nolan, uh, people who can do artsy stuff, but um, but can merge those two, right? Yes. And that there's Cross like the a bridge. special, right? There's that special uh, overlap in the Venn diagram mm. of like doing artsy stuff, but also making it commercial, making it uh, an accessible story kind of thing that uh, Villeneuve and, and Chris Nolan do. And I think, you know, obviously, you know, Spielberg and Besson and stuff mm -hmm, like that. Mm -hmm. um, and to me, that's kind of like my happy zone. Mm. And so mm. Blade Runner 2049 is like exactly in my happy zone. Um, no, and, I, but yeah. I just wish that happy zone did as well as the schlock, you know, yes. um, and had more of a place. There was more of a place for that in our in our culture. And, you know, there is there's still a place for it. Um, it seems like there's almost no place anymore for the art stuff. It does, you know, it does, not only does it not do as well, but it doesn't even get mentioned. The art house theater is closed, you know, um, and, you know, there isn't like the cultural bomb that a, a major art house release used to be where it would win all the Oscars and, you know, you had to pay attention to it. Now it's like, we're going to give the Oscar to a Marvel thing or to, you know, everything everywhere all at once or whatever to make people happy. Yeah. Um, anyway. No, no, I agree. And I think um, we've talked about this again like off the back of last week's film. It's like we've said about what films could do, what modern films could do um, and should be trying new different things and stuff, you know, not just gimmicks like, you know, 3D or, or whatever, um, but actually sort of like trying to do new things with storytelling. Um, and you can cross that bridge. I mean, even Oliver Stone, you know, uh, Natural Born Killers, like, you know, mm -hmm. is a is a you know, a film that sort of doesn't always land in many ways with the messages from our land, but integrates like crazy animation in with sort of like parts of the film and all this other stuff. Like that's a film that you'd be like, yeah, that's, that's a filmmaker that's going, I'm going to do this thing and it's going to be nuts and get on board or don't, you know, I'm sort of, uh, I'm all in for that. Um, yeah. And I was yeah. talking about, you know, that's one of my favorite films. Mm -hmm. I was talking about it just the other day and, you know, you were talking about the Tarantino thing. Um, of like kind of taking B-movie tropes and B-movie references and kind of pulling them together into this, you know, artsy whole. And and you were sort of complaining that Tarantino um, treats them as if they're more than they are, right? You know, sort of 
imagines that they're great artistic masterpieces, you know. Mm. Um, and I like Tarantino more than you do. Uh, I, I do think that he's a masterful director. But I know what you mean. And, but one of the things I would say is, uh, of course, Tarantino wrote the script. But, you know, Oliver Stone in mm. Natural Born Killers was doing that before Tarantino was doing that as a director um, in terms of letting Natural Born Killers be a B movie and sell. And he was just off JFK. I mean, it was just a <laughs> masterpiece of cinematography. JFK mm. is like a traditional movie, a three hour long just exercise in how to make a how to shoot a brilliant movie, yeah. you know, in a, in a very conventional, masterful way. And then he's like. Yeah, I'm gonna go take acid and film in the desert and do this crazy <laughs> ass thing um, that's mind blowing uh, and still is mind blowing to me. Um, but I think, yeah, I, I want there to be places in our culture for that. Um, and I well, think Blade I, I, Runner. Go so ahead. Cool. No, no, what are you say? Well, I was just gonna say, like Blade Runner 2049, it really is right in my zone, and I think Villeneuve, at his best, sort of is in the zone of. Mm he's not doing that crazy wild natural born killers energy, right? He's not doing new stuff, mm. but he's doing this very sort of like polished French, like every shot is beautiful. It is, mm. you know, he, he's so in love with um, just aesthetics and having every frame be something that you could blow up and put on your wall. Um, and that really is true here. And I do feel very spoiled by his films in that sense. And I think that when he's able to unite that with a story that is compelling and and has themes, um, you know, it, it, it's really, while not as revolutionary, it's really an artistic accomplishment of the First Order. Oh, no, I agree. Um, I, I actually, because I think, you know, I think there is those wild films, as I think we sort of said, you know, I think uh, Natural One Killers, I think uh, the, the Johnny Depp version of uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is one. Um, you know, we've talked about Videodrome being, and I think one of the eight oh, in the eighties. Yeah. You know, those sorts of kind of films that really do push boundaries in different ways. Um, even like Brazil, like you know, some of those those kinds of films. But you're right. But this film sort of fits in that category to me of advancing, um, advancing sort of film by creating something that's just seriously beautiful to look at. It's sumptuous. It's incredible. Um, but doing it with modern technology, like really taking advantage of modern technology, computer technology, to create something that's visually stunning in the purest sense. But but not being overly knowing when to be busy and when to be not busy. If you know what I mean, when to sort of take away that busyness and be sort of isolated, uh, and create some of those real differences between, as you said, like Los Angeles and anywhere else. And I think that's why he's so good at this is because he wants to create this sense of mood throughout the entire film. Um, and he's able to do it with um, just some of the visuals and to set things up. I mean, that whole, well, actually just everything's up, but the whole set, the whole section of this film in Las Vegas, where it's mm -hmm. orange and everything mm -hmm. that is just phenomenal to look at. Like every part. I agree. And, and, you know, the scene, the fight scene between... It's a fight scene. like It's, it's a literal mm -hmm. fight scene between Deckard and, and Kay. But you've got um, the the holograms of Elvis, Elvis and... and the dancers and everything going on yeah. around it. But cutting in, cutting and start, you know, mm -hmm. starting and stopping. And sort of, oh, it's, I, lo I love that scene. I love that scene so much. And I'd forgotten about that. And I was like, oh, this is so good. And then it ends when they're like... Uh, when Deckard's just like, 
I really like this song. <laughs> can we stop? <laughs> you know, can we stop? Um, can we we can either keep trying this or we can talk. And I was just like, like you say, the dialogue in this just fits. And so I'm um, enjoying. Yeah, we'll get to those. But you're right. I think Villeneuve is is fits into that um, artistic category of just being so so good at what he does. Well. And I also want to say that, you know, we were so nervous about a Blade Runner sequel, right? Mm. Uh, culturally. I mean, when I say we, I mean, you know, you and I sort of, you know, the sort of like a pop culture, smart people, you know, watching this stuff. Um, yeah, you know, it was apprehensive. You know, there was a feeling of like, is this classic movie going to be ruined by a stupid sequel? Yeah. And for this to come in, and I think in so many ways be better than the original, um, you know, but certainly be sumptuous is a brilliant word to use, um, you know, sumptuous and beautiful and to really understand the moodiness of the original, that it's all about, you know, the score and the shots and establishing that mood. It feels so in line with the original mm. way more than anyone could expect and yet goes off to places like Las Vegas and then succeeds at doing that. Like, you would never think that's going to be good, right? Like, the next Blade Runner sequel, like, don't worry, Harrison Ford is back, and now you're going to see the ruins of Las Vegas. You're going to be, oh, my God, this this sounds horrible, right? There's so yeah. many cheap, gimmicky shots that you could imagine in Vegas. And, you escape know, from like, escape from Las Vegas, kind of. Yes, yes, right? Like, how do you avoid that stuff? And this not only avoids it, but succeeds so that that's one of both of our favorite sequences. Um and I just think that to be able to take science fiction and some mm. of these themes and do that with it to make a serious artistic movie about science fiction and these existential themes, which is what people love about Blade Runner, um, you know, I think it's just a, a great masterpiece. Well, I, yeah, and I agree. I think we're, we're both going to gush over this film a little bit, I think, because we go through. But mm. one of the things I find I found fascinating watching it this time um, as I went through it, was the the first film in particular is a very claustrophobic film. It's, it's you know it's it, it, there's barely any light, you know. Um, it's it's often at night. It's raining. Um, every, even the streets are very overcrowded and they're overseen. Or you're in an office and there's all this stuff. Like it's never there are no wide open spaces. So the, that's why sort of you know it's um, it's it's a very sort of like say closed in film. And it creates that mood of claustrophobia, like the whole. It's that part of that noir sense, isn't it, of just being trapped and being, you know, it's all, it's all, it works incredibly well. But one of the things I loved about this film was, um, whenever you're in Las Vegas, uh, sorry, when you're in Los Angeles and stuff, it it maintains that claustrophobia, like it makes sure that all the room, none of the rooms that they ever go in are big, like they're always sort of like, they're just enough for you to do the scene, but like even like the morgue yeah. or, or his his boss's, Kay's boss's office, uh, Robin Wright's office is, is sm not small, but like, you know, not really big. His apartment is kind of small. The streets are always dark and all this other stuff. Like Los Angeles feels contained um mm -hmm. and and grimy and all sort of stuff but whenever he goes out like when they go to Sapper Morton's to uh, the 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 um the farm farmhouse yeah and stuff like it's the desolation and stuff creates this sort of like this massive you have this sense of like just space but also like 
desolation and also isolation. Like all of a sudden, you're like, because you get the same in Vegas um, and also uh, the trash area. As you go outside, mm-hmm. with all that, the the he presents each of these areas, but it's almost like they've stopped and said, "Well, what does this what does this place mean? What is the purpose in the story of this? How should they've literally said, how should someone feel?" Okay, well, we're going to go to the farm, and it's like the last place that Sapper Morton can hide out. It's all about isolation. This is all mm-hmm. about being alone, but having all this space. But you know, it's it feels. Um, the trees being kept up, like it's been pinned up with wires and stuff, so it feels mm. like artificial. Mm-hmm. It's all, and then when you get to the trash place, like the people that live there, it's grimy and dirty and overreach. Each of those Vegas feels, you know, it's big but it's dusty, and the color of the the orange and all the statues and everything feels weird and otherworldly. And you are now, you know, you are not in your place. This is a dangerous place. Each 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 place has been thought out so well. It, that it's it that the art direction and the thought that's gone into the how each of these locales is designed and filmed is is yeah is is you said a masterclass it's absolutely brilliant. Well, and in a in a lesser director, they would be defined by like color or different materials, right? Mm, mm. And you're right that Vegas is defined by color, but I mean like. Uh, uh, each area would have its own color and its own sigil or its own materials and people would praise it and say what mm. world building and i would think what masturbation you know yeah like that's not world building this is world building where you get these different areas and they all have a different feel they all have a different look and that different look has everything to do with as you say what's going on in that area it mm. flows organically from what that area is so you know the farmhouse which is so brilliantly desolated right it's so Mm. beautiful and it's sort of destructive potential um you know and you're right all about isolation but also this sense of sort of desperately clinging to life right Mm. like the point of it is it's a protein farm where they're farming you know maggots and stuff like this you know like uh this is how tenuous humanity's grip on survival really is once you get outside of we thought it was grimy in Blade Runner but the beauty and opulence of the city um, and that tree propped up those those wires convey to you you know just in an image how near to death humanity really has gotten and still remains even all these years after the nuclear exchange prior to the first Blade Runner Yeah. Um, so you're doing world building but you're doing it visually. And the same thing with Las Vegas. This is the ruined landscape that represents the, you know, uh, atomic uh, detonation. In that case, the, you know, the blackout detonation. But, uh, you know, presumably. But, um, you know, the ruins of the once great civilization. And, you know, yeah, you've been in the nice part. You know, like yeah. you didn't think Blade Runner was the nice part, but that's you've, the nice part. That's it. You've been and in the you good the neighborhood. Trash. Yeah. Right. And the trash is yeah. like, oh, this is this is the whole civilization outside of Manila where they're on the garbage dump, right? Like this is yeah, and every area looks so different. It has its own feel, but it's not cheap. It's not it's not these cheap signs of world building. It actually is fully conceived looks different but in a logical way that does really build a world 
Yeah. I think the thing is, as well, a lot of it has layers. And that's the thing you say, sort of like, you know, it could be, like you say, it could be cheaply done of like, this is lit blue, this is lit green, and all this other stuff to sort of like depict different things. And I kind of find that tedious after a while, like, you know, when, when, when directors do that. But even like, say, I'll, I'll, let, let's sit, sit, stick with like Sapper Morton's farm. The fact is, like, it's consider- he calls it a farm repeatedly. Um, it's mentioned at least sort of three times it being a farm, but what, as you say, what they are, what he is farming is his protein things, his maggots or leeches or whatever those those things are. Those those you know protein worms. But we 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 identify with the word farming being big fields of crops and verdant green fields of cattle and all this other stuff. And there is nothing. This is a barren dusty you know dry place and that tree be a dead tree no less being propped up um as you said sort of like almost like an indicator of this is the this is this was nature and it Mm. and we are holding on to nature with this artificiality these metal rods and stuff it speaks volumes but then it becomes even more to me when you find that at the foot of that tree is the is the grave and they've got the thing carved in there and you're like oh this is not just a um a thing where they've kept this tree about because they you know whatever it's a headstone yeah this this tree this dead tree is a headstone and it just makes the whole thing this death this area of death even more like everything here dies you know and it's just sort of like this example of like we obviously find out that that's Rachel and she died in childbirth, and but the land around us all died. Like it's so, I don't. Know, it's fantastically sort of like maudlin and mm-hmm. melancholy, but without being gothic and depressing. Mm. And, do you know what I mean? Like, um, yeah. you know, um, I can imagine there being the thing of like everything's got to be black, and we've got to show, mm-hmm. you know, it's got to be dark and blah blah. But they've like no, it's a Burton movie. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah, yeah. you know, and I'm, I'm that's it's almost the opposite with like, wait, no, it's just mm-hmm. clinical and it's barren and all sort of stuff. I just know, I just think it's a really good idea. The more you learn, the, the so the more you see, the more information is there for you to take from every, each of these scenes. Well, you know, I've realized as I've gotten older that I am very aesthetically driven. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have to be surrounded by beauty to feel sane. Mm. Um, and when I am, you know, I live in Hawaii and I can go to the beach and I can see the ocean, but I also live in Waikiki and I love skyscrapers. I love, you know, the silliness of it. And, you know, these sheets of grass of glass reaching yeah. up to the heavens, you know, constructed by, by men. And I think this is, you know, maybe this is silly, but this is majestic and beautiful mm-hmm. and, and it, and it speaks to my spirit in, in a different way. And I think that this movie is so aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Um, there isn't, I love, uh, photos of like ruined ruins and ruined landscapes. And obviously the romantic period love that too, mm-hmm. but you know, there is a beauty to desolation and that farm, especially with the incongruity of the spanner landing on it and, you know, looking so slick and clean and technological and beautiful next to this dead tree, this house and this bleak you know, landscape with the dust blowing through. Um, that incongruity is arresting. Mm. The landscape itself is is stunningly beautiful, but in that desolate way. 
And then in, you know, Vegas, you have the, uh, the, that aesthetics of the ruined epitomized by those, those ruined um, statues. statues. Yeah. Oh my God. How brilliant is that? Um, and again, again, I must, I just have to highlight though, because the, the, if, if I can imagine there was a point where they were like, we're going to be, this, this is going to be in Vegas because it's a big part of like the overall world building plot. Um, and someone's gone, oh, so you're going to be on the strip. Are we going to see this? Are we going to, no, because we're not in our world. We're in the, the world of Blade Runner. Like, you know, there is, I was so glad they didn't fall into that trap of having sort of like his Caesar's Palace or the Bellagio <laughs> all trashed. You know what I mean? Like, I'm so glad mm-hmm. they didn't do that. It's, you get it that there's an opulence. I mean, Elvis clearly existed in this world, but, mm-hmm. um, there's an opulence to Vegas because of these statues, but that's it. There's a hint of it, but but no more. And I think that's more than enough for, um, you know, for, for you to get the point. Yeah, and the word opulence is a great is great there. You know, the sense of, you know, what I love about Vegas and and it's a strain in America and and somewhat in Waikiki too is a sense of like, why not just build it, right? Like, yeah. Build these giant statues. <laughs> why We're going to have our own Eiffel Tower. You know, there's unbelievable fountains. Is it is it wasteful and stupid to do this in the middle of a desert? Absolutely. <laughs> but so what? It's cool. Like, let's, let's just do it. There's something very American to that spirit. Mm. And those statues convey that opulence, that, that sort of like grandeur, that's that almost stupid grandeur. But here, of course, they've been destroyed you know, we're in the ruins of it. Um, so, yeah, I, I there's a separate aesthetic to that. But again, it, it's got a point. It's got a, mm. uh, a message. It's, in, you know, not just for this world, but, uh, you know, aesthetically and thematically. Yeah, and I think that's sort of one, one of the things I would say is it's not um, throwaway. Again, in, in a lesser director's hands, they'd be like, oh, yeah, we've got these couple of scenes, and so we're going to make those stand out as being the, you know, the, I'm going to do those in, um, what's it called, IMAX. They're going to be, oh, there's, mm. they're, the, they're the shots that are going to be in IMAX. And you go, oh, okay, cool. But with, again, with Villeneuve, with this, it feels like that, that thought to aesthetic runs throughout you know, like even in, uh, again, you know, there are small scenes like in apartments or offices that you go, okay, it's not grand or whatever, but like it is the, the you are given a sense of what that place is and why it's there and, and all this other stuff. Like um, the, the police station um, compared to Kay's apartment, compared mm. to the Wallace uh, offices, and how different the architecture is in each of those places. They're all in the same city. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but they're all different and clearly built for different purposes and of a different age. And I just love how it's like, mm. you know, one of the things that drives me mad is when you do see films like this and they're just like, everywhere's got pipes or like everywhere's just dirty and got corrugated stuff. It's like, no, no, no. Like things are built at different times out of different materials mm-hmm. with a different purpose. And so I right. like that they, they all feel of a of a of a of a piece, but they are clearly separate. And I love how they are designed to um serve that purpose. And I think, you know, again, I love the Wallace offices as well. I think some of those designs in that place are fantastic. Oh yeah, I do too. And but totally different, like you mm. say. Um I love the police station designs. That door that's scuffed up on mm. uh Robin Wright's office. 
um, who I love her, by the way. Um, but that door, it's just a door, right? But it's scuffed up and you see him leaving. And I'm like, I'm blown. Like, I love this movie. I'm blown away by like the shot of the door. Mm. Like the door is such a fascinating design, but you know, and you see that it's used, it's tarnished, right? It, it, it has this utilitarian quality that fits with, you know, everything in that police station. But, and I love what you're saying because the, the biggest offender of this is not just every movie where everything looks the same, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, oh yeah, the city was built in three years by the same person, you know, <laughs> um, when one architectural firm did every single building here. Um, you know, what a but, contract to win. <laughs> right, no kidding, right? Yeah. And, and and then after they were done, all future building was prohibited. Yeah. Um, you know, but, but the biggest defender of this is, you know, sci-fi, like Star Wars, where, like, every planet has its own single function where it's like oh this is the garbage planet this is this is the art deco planet welcome to tatooine the desert planet well if it's a desert planet why is anybody living on it it's ridiculous yeah it's it's yeah i this feels like like say like a world that has um like say different architects over years this is a collection of of buildings that's come together for different purposes and it feels like a this is the thing that sort of always they say about um star wars you know in the original star wars oh it, it, it's it's lived in it's science fiction mm-hmm. that's lived in and you go yeah it, things are dirty right that's what they mean <laughs> that's what they mean this is yeah. lived this is and i feel like the same a little bit more with the with the, the original blade runner but more so with this. this is lived in everything's different it's, you know like I say my house that i'm living in right now i could go over to two streets and there's houses that were built 15, 20 years after this, they're very different. Mm. They're still a house. And there's, there's, you know, there's a brand new estate just over the next village. They were built last year. They're incredibly different to this. Like, I, you know, and so I, I hate in sci-fi films when you could have that and they go, this has been around, this has been like this for thousands. I kind of say that when they have like thousands of years and they have some sort of great thing and you go, really? Your architecture and technology hasn't changed in thousands of years. Yeah. Drives, me, drives me mad but this feels that so you know, that's, that's so no, yeah. i love that point and especially about the term lived in right mm. um and you're right usually that's just a synonym for dirty right yeah. it's not clean it doesn't look like a it just came off the set production line you know mm. um okay uh but this you're, you're right i mean this even like the uh, rooftop where he talks with joy you know mm. is it's this functional rooftop. You feel like it is the roof of an apartment building. Um, you know, it feels very different than police headquarters and, and other mm. things. And that apartment building's great. Even looking out the window, seeing all this other light, you just want to pause it and look at all everything. Also, yeah, it feels so layered as well. That's the thing that when they're in um, when they're in Los Angeles, like they've really layered it up. Like it's 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 not. It's no longer just these amazing. Um, very you know impressive commercial pieces they're there the big banners or the big screens and so there's other bit holograms and stuff but like yeah you could easily sort of pause a pause this on a certain shot and be like right what's going on in the background oh wow they've got like a vendor over there doing this like there's stuff to look at and i feel that they did that with the with the first one there was that there and that this has really grown that aesthetic of um for example the the scene that I had forgotten about um, 
because it doesn't need doesn't need to have this, but they're throwing these things in, is where Kay going for something to eat and he's approached by or he has he is sent uh, so the woman I'm gonna we'll get into the plot of it, but three prostitutes are sent over to speak to him. Um and then he's like, No, you know, you know what I am, you know, blah 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 blah. And then they leave and you go back to the brothel it passes through the brothel where they are. And there's mm-hmm. basically like sex rooms, but there's like you can hear the sex, but also like the rooms are like frosted perspex. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so like you can see the bodies up against that, and I'm just like, Yeah, wow, that's gone in the background. But like they're not making a big deal of it. It's not mm-hmm. like you know, it's not like in some films where they do a club scene and they'll linger on these things. It's no, it's just there. That's just how this this place works. And you know, it's next to a, a restaurant where people are sat out eating noodles. Um as it should be, uh, yeah. you know, I mean, you and I had the conversation before about uh, sort of the mm. role of censorship and, and pornography and, and violence and stuff. I mean, you know, yeah, I, you're right. And this is details. And the other thing that's interesting is that, like, you know, you and I love uh, Verhoeven and love, mm-hmm. you know, Robocop and Total Recall and Starship Troopers. Uh, but there's a crudeness. Uh, there's an obviousness to sort of like the the three tits of uh, the woman on Mars, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, of sort of like you know, now we're gonna get sexy on you. You know, <laughs> like so utterly absent from this film, right? Which is really about a lot of there's a lot of sexual stuff going on, not just with those prostitutes, but with you know the pull of Rachel for uh, Deckard and with Joy and you know. Uh, the sort of AI hologram mm. and, you know, the other uh, that you can just buy a joy, you know, that tries to seduce him after, you know, his joy is dead. Um, there's a lot going on here, but um, it never goes into that kind of obvious territory. Well, it always, yeah, it always sort of stops just before, doesn't it? And it because it lingers, and I think you know, well, I really want to talk about the relationships between Kay and Joy in particular. Um, um well, could, could I just say globally, mm. it's one thing that I am really troubled by. There are several things that I let okay, so we've done a lot of praise, we will mm. do way more praise, okay? Mm-hmm. But let me introduce two things that troubled me about this film. Um, and I think I do think it's a masterpiece, I do think it's a titanic accomplishment especially to do a sequel to Blade Runner that expands its universe in ways that feel perfectly in line with the look and feel of the original. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's a staggering accomplishment. However, um, I have never, 1.1, as I've never understood this crawl at the beginning with the blackout and, you know, um, you know, this uh, replicant revolt and how now they're back with a different model but it's no longer Tyrell. It's now. I'm fine with it being the Wallace Corporation. Like it's been mm-hmm. 30 years. Corporations get under. And Tyrell died in the first one as well. So, right. And you know. So, but I mean, there was succession there. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, you know, yeah. I mean, um, and and like obviously Wayland Utani in the in the Alien franchise seems to mm-hmm. you know go Eight on back. and on. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, so I'm fine with it being the Wallace Corporation, but. I don't know why we need like to have gone through like a replicate Holocaust, you know, and then, you know, a a data Holocaust. And then, you know, I'm glad that stuff has happened in this intervening 30 years, but I find that's an awful lot of work 
to a lot of stuff to have happened to basically arrive at exactly the point we were at at the end of the first Blade Runner plus a few years with <laughs> yeah. a new mob. You know, that's point one. Yeah, I don't know well, if you have any thoughts about that. Uh, oh, do you want to do you want to address both points one at a time, or do you want to address them both? Are well, they... why don't you just address this first one because it's well, no, very different. Uh, yeah, I I agree with exactly what you're saying, and we sort of you know again, if you want to know more about our thoughts on the shorts, go check out the Patreon and how that sort of fills in. But I I agree. I think it feels a bit. <sighs> they've said it's thirty years. This is they've they've done this to be sort of like distance in real time, and the first one, you know, uh, in in the Blade Runner world takes place in 2019, and so this is 2049, 30 years. And you're like, cool, all right, you know, it's about right, you know. So they're going to do this thing, um, but the, the, again, they're they're acknowledging that well, history takes place, things happen, mm-hmm. there are wars, there are things that are going on, and this other stuff. But the thing that's interesting is, well, no, the, the thing that's not so let's say interesting. The disappointing thing is, whilst the first film deals with the notion of replicants escaping their role to look for expanded life and to sort of to live I mean that's the purpose of of Roy Batty and, and his crew um it there's no there's no mention of this being a wider thing of replicants looking to revolt mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there's no there's no sort of like mention of, you know, no point does press say to um Sebastian mm-hmm. or, or one of the others go we're just the start of a revolution or there's you know we brothers shall, you know, rise up and whatever. But there's no... You don't know who we're really tied into, right? Exactly, like yeah. yeah. There's no sort of, like, lingering thing of they're part of a bigger picture or they, are, you know, a, a replicant underground railroad allow them to escape or something like that. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no hint of that. So it's a small story, which is one of the reasons we love the first film. It's sort of like it is a contained film. And the death of Roy Batty sort of brings it to a close for the, that group of replicants. But this sort of interceding year stuff, yeah, it feels like we've got to fill it with history. We might as well fill it with something big. And you go, cool. Does it have any impact on the story? Not really. <laughs> you go, all right, well, do, do, do we need that then? Not really. So why did you do it? Well, the only real impact it has is the loss of the records, right, of the old Tyrell Corporation. But you could get there... It could just be old, old corporate stuff takeover, corporate, right? ta- yeah. corporate takeovers, stuff were lost, stuff were, it's, it's deep in archives. We can't, t- yeah, it's this, yeah, it doesn't need to be this big world moving along kind of thing. And you're right about like a replicant revolution not being part of the original Blade Runner, inconceivable in the original mm. Blade Runner. In fact, that's part of why the original Blade Runner works, is because <laughs> it's rare that anyone rebels and here they're killing people but they're not killing people in the first blood runner like as a political act yeah. they feel those politics and that lets them justify it but they're not killing you know but the, also, they, the, the only the... reason they kill tyrell is because they want to have their lives extended and he can't do it that's yeah. not a political murder of like someone in power who's let us no it's a petulance it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lashing out but one of the things you say that, that one of the the points is that they have an ex they have they were looking for extended life they can live what is it six years something like that mm-hmm. so Seven, what something like that. yeah so they have a very very limited lifespan mm-hmm. so a, a revolt is pretty pointless because they'd revolt and you go all right well we'll stop making them for now and in five years they'll all be gone anyway right that's right yeah so, and 
Yeah. I mean, you know, so I would say like part of the like this this sequel also stars a Blade Runner, right? You know, which yeah. I guess makes sense because, you know, it's also like even more than the first one, a film noir, right? Mm-hmm. In a lot of mm-hmm. ways. There's a mystery that he's trying to solve, like a detective, right? That's really follows through the whole film. It's all mm-hmm. about one mystery. It's a very complex plot plot, really, when you, you know, go through every twist and turn. Um you know, there are a lot of little clues and stuff that lead to the next scene, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think part of the issue is that they want a sequel that looks and feels like the original Blade Runner, you know, but is different enough that it's not just somebody who you don't know is a replicant. We're just going to say, OK, he's a replicant from the beginning. Um, but in terms of like, but they don't want to do something like, say, Los Angeles is now expanding into the wasteland and is trying to reclaim that and we're going to go into that area that would alter kind of the world in a way from that first one of uh you know and it seems to me that would be more interesting than well we got knocked back but then we climbed we we climbed back to the status quo of the first movie and we're basically there again right just in time for the next little story well the thing is as well there's you know, we know that preceding the first film, there was a you know a, a nuclear holocaust. There was some sort of you know war. There was something going on that mm-hmm. sort of like because that's why people are leaving to go off world and there's other things going on. You know, battleships off the shoulder of Orion or whatever. None of the environments that we meet that we come to in this film require the history that is explained to exist you know we mm-hmm. we learn you know we learn through mm-hmm. the plot that las vegas is one of the you know when they talk about the dirty bomb do they do the radiation mm-hmm. um matching for this the little wooden horse thing and he saw there's only one place that could have this level of um you know mm-hmm. radiation this level of dirt is isn't it turns out to be las vegas but that doesn't mean there's no reason that, that they have to have had this blackout with um, mm-hmm. the the uh, you know with the the nuclear weapon with the blackout, which is obviously covered in the short. None of that's needed. It's just could have just been exactly the same without it. Well, like it, you know, except except it's you're right. Except it, it, the only way that it's needed is besides the records is the uh is that it gets replicants banned, mm. which then they subsequent subsequently get reinstated by the Wallace Corporation. So again. I think it's kind of like an excuse for why the basic level of technology 30 years later uh, is the same, especially when it comes to replicants, right? That it's like, well, humanity got knocked back. We stopped making replicants as a result. Then Wallace came along and he's been, you know, making it. And now he's going to introduce another generation, right? Um, And I think that's, I think that's basically, you know, it's, it's like 30 years have passed, but, yeah, we're basically you know a few years technologically. After Here's a, yeah again, right? It sounds like we don't know the we didn't know the breadth of Tyrell the the Tyrell Corporation in the first film. Mm-hmm. You know they make replicants, mm-hmm. right? That's it. But you do not know what else they're making or how many subcontractors they had or how it all worked, right? Because you didn't really explore that. Doesn't need to, but we I know we sort of touched on the wider world when we talked about the first film. Sod, you, sod the bloody blackout and the, the nuclear thing. 
The death of Tyrell shook the Tyrell Corporation. It resulted in an economic collapse that you know of the Tyrell organization. They were such a monopoly that it took out all their subcontractors and the world suffered, you know, a thing. And it was actually Wallace that was able to bring things back. Mm-hmm. You know, solved it. And it actually ties into the first film. And Blade, you're right. And Blade Runner's, uh, you know, replicants fell out of fashion after, you know, building one apparently gets your CEO killed. And, yeah. you know, one went on well, a cost. very public rampage. The, ty- and, yeah, the, 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 well, the, the collapse of the Tyrell organization, he, he'd had it as a, you know, a dictatorship within. It turns mm-hmm. out that it was a bit of a shaky deal financially without him at the top. Stocks collapsed. And mm-hmm. also they he had kept propriety information about how to build replicants. And so it took 30 years or whatever for Wallace to to break the mm-hmm. technology again. Mm hmm. Yeah, and actually, I really like that because then it makes that first film mean something. It feels like a slice of life, right? It feels like a small thing. It's a small thing that winds up having big implications. Exactly. Right? And that death of Tyrell then really matters, right? Yeah. Ripples through history. That would be so much more impactful for this. And it actually, it would be way more impactful for some of the. Um, themes of this film about legacy and about the you know evolution and all this other stuff and one person mm. one person being able to hold the future in their hands or you know so i don't know it feels like yeah they've just gone bombs it's an easy one you know <laughs> revolution yeah. it feels yeah I, I don't like i don't like this blackout thing i really don't for that for this film um well so my second objection um, and I actually have a third, but I'll, I'll get to it later. Okay. Are you, are you uh, happy with how I? Are you happy with how I have addressed and resolved your first point? Have we? No, I think we're on the same page. <laughs> no, yeah. Well, no, I think we're on the same page. I mean, yeah. we we agree uh, utterly about this. Um, uh, so point two is, uh, and again, there's a minor point I have, but point two is really the treatment of women. Um, mm. So, you know, first of all. I do not like that Rachel has been killed off. I love Rachel. I think that, you know, she's the most compelling character for me from the first film. I don't like that she's been killed off screen in such an unceremonial, uh, traumatic way, right? She's died giving birth, right? Which implies, you know, again, the, the point of women is to give birth. You know, she accomplished that. That was the point of love was their love was for her to pop out a replicant baby mm-hmm. and you know that done we don't really need her and we got to bring back harrison ford but we don't really have to bring back rachel um in fact we can kill her unceremoniously and you know shove her body underneath the tree you know <laughs> uh, i mean i'm putting too much stress on it but i don't like that choice no and I then that rachel's I, I, brought back Go yeah ahead. i was gonna say i don't think it's um Let's not bring back Rachel. I have more of a feeling it's we can't bring back Sean Young. Well, except they do. Is it Sean Young that actually is Rachel? Because he obviously makes a young. Much, I thought it was a, it was another actress with a yeah. digital. I think you might be right. Dig, digital yeah. fake or whatever they call it. Deep yeah, fake. It could just be yeah. Because they so, keep her in shadow quite a lot. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think you. I think you're right. Um, but. You know, so, but it's still, I don't know. I mean, so. I know what you're saying. To die no. A year after Blade Runner. Like, that really kind of makes the ending. I mean, look, the ending of Blade Runners, we don't know how long we have. But, mm. like, the answer is, like, 
yeah, you had a few months and then you died in childbirth and that's the end, you know. It's like, and I guess he, 29 years later, is still pining for that one great love that, you know, died a few months later. None of that really works for me. No, well, one of the things we always said about that first, we said we both agreed on that first film is the relationship between Deckard Mm -hmm. and, and Rachel doesn't work. Or it feels it doesn't feel like it a feels rapey and yeah, yeah. And, and and slightly aggressive, and so the, yeah. them running off at the end is fine, but never feels like this great you know love being free kind of moment. Um, and so yeah, this does feel a little bit of a again like oh okay, yeah, and and again, it's not like that can't happen. It can't. It's mm. not that Rachel can't die in childbirth. It's it's not that you can't make these decisions. It's just. I don't buy that he's still mourning her 29 years later. I mean, you know, I, I don't know. Um, it, it, but it does feel like, you know, kill your women, right? Um, you know, obviously, I love Robin Wright. I love her as an actress. I've seen her in mm. a lot of stuff, and I really enjoy her every time. Um, you know, but, I, and I love the character of Joy, uh, but Joy is brutally murdered. And to yeah. the film's credit, you feel that death. Right. You know, mm. even though she's an AI, I really love that character and I really feel that death. And everyone I know who's seen this film does. And that causes them to have compassion for artificial intelligence and for, you know, uh, replicants by proxy. That's really great. But again, she is an object that is designed sexually, uh, you know, is very much a sexual object in the advertisement that is sold and transferred and controlled and disposed of um ultimately um you know the there's even a scene with like the the new replicant the first time you see one of these you know replicants falling nude uh you when you you first meet uh wallace he it's always creepy when you have men dressed formally in suits next to a naked woman Mm. uh and for him to caress her and then stab her in the stomach and tell her she's useless feels a little misogynistic and well there's the whole... just a little too much of this for me no 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 you're right i, I would I'm... actually say and it, it, for all you describe i'd say the film is it's 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 a misogynistic film kind of wrapped up in trying to present a not feminist but you know mm-hmm. um because again the child that is of that was born of rachel for a long time is is they be- at least Kay believes to be a son, and also obviously believes it to be himself, and we'll get into that. Um, but yeah, the women are there to be creators, or to be if they're not a creator, they're there to be angry. That's mm. it. So you've either got like um, you know, like you said, they're either a sexual thing, and that's their purpose, or they're angry and bitter. In a say, in a case of um, Robin Wright as the as his captain, and uh, what's her name, um, Sylvia Hoax as Love, mm-hmm. who's just sort of like you know she she's I'd say she's one of the weak links in this film, a sort of just stroppy replicant, mm-hmm. um, um, and so and even as you say about creation. Even when it's revealed who that it was a, a girl and who the the daughter of, of Deckard and Rachel is, well, 
she's about creation it's about creation again like she doesn't she's 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 trapped inside a bubble and it's literally her only purpose is to sort of create these memories and that for replicants that's her purpose it's about creation and so so yeah no it is it's kind of sort of misogynistic this film and i'm kind of disappointed that we've now gone down this route because i'm like oh shit is that why i just you know it's kind of in that way um but it it manages character well um Hmm. i think Mm -hmm. And that's where sort of it works, where where I say that like um, Sylvia Howick's love is probably the weak thing because I think she feels a little bit flat. She's a little two dimensional, but I love Robin writing this. I think she's great, and I do think she's quite a rounded character in this sort of how she's human but has this replicant Blade Runner working for her, and she sort of forgets at times that he's a replicant and. But also is really like is kind to him, but also really yeah. mean to him, right? Yeah. You know, he's like the house negro or something, you know, like she oh, yeah. I know that's she, not a popular term. No, but no, I mean, but she sort of she, catches herself, doesn't she? She sort of she'll be kind yeah. to him, and then she'll catch herself and be like, Oh no, you're one of them. But she's she's makes a point of, of saying a joke about how he doesn't have a soul. You mm. know, I mean, and I thought, Oh wow, this is you know, uh you know, she says, Do your orders that a boy, you know, like uh, it's it's pretty pretty dark, but then gives him a break, you know, gives yeah. him extra time uh, and stuff. Just to confirm, uh, you were right that you know our archival footage uh, of Sean Young was used to help digitally recreate her, yeah. along with a, another actress, Lauren Petta. Yeah. Um, so you're you're right about that, but you know, and I think you're right that this film wants to be more feminist than it is that both uh, Robin Wright as the head of the police department, effectively, you know, mm. and the head of the, like, revolution that we see is Frazia, you know, another woman. So this wants to be a more feminist or empowered movie than it really is. But, um, and I think, obviously, again, the whole replicant thing is, like, uh, the whole point of it is, whether you see it as racial or not, it's about um, empowering the other, right? Mm-hmm. The minority. And so at its heart, Blade Runner, you know, is a, you know, uh, empowering franchise. But just like the first one has these issues, this one has a sort of like very French aesthetic, sort of like love of that female body. And you see it in a lot of French science fiction where it's like, oh, the the paleo whores and, mm. you know, um, and in Cal and like Meta Barons has, you know, yes, its own problems. I mean, the f- there is a sort of like very Frenchy sort of, um, but women are sexy and you know, they look good in high heels. What's right, wrong yeah. with you yeah. know, with the camera lingering a little bit? Uh, it's, you know, it's the yeah, it's the weird thing of I always find bizarre is, uh, even you know, every time they'll try and do, they'll damp down. Like the sexiness, even like in the superhero films, for example, yet they'll still give them high heel boots. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you're like, oh, that doesn't seem very practical at all. Um, one of the things I want to say about we've said about the you know the potential misogyny of this film, but actually, what I want to I want I do want to highlight. I'm going to counter that. Let's say I'm going to counter that. Mm-hmm. That there is this idea of um. You know the character of Joy, and again, I, I actually really like um, Anna de Armas. I think she's a fantastic actress, and I think she's got she's on a real run at the moment. Of, of and mm. you know, um, she's really good in like um, 
Well, I'm not going to get into all the films, but she's great. But anyway, um, her as Joy, you know, she's is is interesting. This idea of the way she sort of feels for and what she wants to do for um, Kay. You know, she brings him sort of this the holographic food in place of the slop that he's having to eat, and um, she wear, like, her outfit changes to fit his mood and sort of thing. Like she's clearly very subservient to him, but like it's done. And there's this question, isn't there? Is is it legit love? Is it is it actual love, or is it programming? And that's obviously what the the question that comes later uh, when he meets the big, the massive uh, promotional thing. But she is a compassionate character. Like she's also this idea of she is constantly saying to him, "Like I've always said, you're special." Like she's she's there as a sort mm-hmm. of like a, a supportive partner. And so she has this sort of purpose. And it's, I'm not saying that women should be there to, to, to support men, but she is this compassionate in, in this crappy world. Like she's the hope. She's this thing of like all the women are trying to trying to do good, you know, apart from love. Who's But even she's the one that's like, we're trying to advance um, replicant evolution Technology. just yeah. through a different method. And, you know, you say about Rachel, you say about um, uh, the woman who's leading the revolution. That act of Wallace, though, on that female re- replicant, mm-hmm. which firstly made me think of aliens when that sort of like you know the the, the queen laying an egg kind of thing, it just sort mm. of slops out of that sort of tube. Him slitting her because he's not slitting her stomach; he's slitting her. What well, is it? It's her abdomen, but like it's a he's attacking the uterus, isn't it? Or the, her absence of a uterus. This film, in many cases, is about the is to me when I see those scenes is about the frustration and and I don't want to use the word impotence, but like women are seen as the creators. They are the they are the holders of the future. Like you know, creation comes from women, and he cannot because he's a man. He cannot do that. Like he has not been able to break this technology to create a replicant that can. And now Tyrell had done it, and I know that sort of slightly goes off piste here, but like all the women in this, as you said, are there to create, but it's about the mm. men in this are all there to destroy. That's the point is like, it's a very, whenever, you know, there are very few men in this film that are there as a positive influence. Um, Sapper Morton probably being one of the few as a mm-hmm. farmer, but he's a former soldier. Like he was, when he mm-hmm. was, it was designed as a replicant to be a soldier. And he's trying to, you know, um, K is a replicant that commits replicant death. Like he kills other replicants. Murder. Yeah, Deckard was a was a killer uh, and acknowledges mm-hmm. it in in this. Um, Wallace is although he's trying to create replicants, kills indiscriminately and he's happy to have you know people murdered. Um, there's no there are no male characters in this that aren't basically associated with death in some way. No, I think you're right. And I think that that would be a great argument. I think you can you know, argue that basically the thesis would be like, this is a great depiction of both a, a culture that's still sort of patriarchal and where mm. women have inherited some of those patriarchal roles, right? Like mm. um, head of police uh, or, yeah. Right, exactly. But where that is, the men are very much defined by womb envy, right? Mm-hmm. And that, that mm. is what that scene's about. He's a bad guy. He's, you know, he's blind, but he's the bad guy, right? He wants to create, but he can't. Um, he needs, you know, women. He needs the womb, you know. Um, and, I, and I think all of that, you're right. I mean, all of that is there. 
Um, I just think that there's a strain through the film that I find just a little uncomfortable. Mm. Um, even, even I love the shot. I would never take them out, but the shots of the statues at Las Vegas, again, disembodied female body parts, very sexy, you know, um, it is all kind of of a piece. Um, now that did and, feel and, French, by the way, that felt that, that, oh, whole yes. bit, yeah. <laughs> oh, and of, of course, and I love it. I mean, I yeah, would yeah. never take that out, but I mean, I think, I think that, and it, of course it's okay to be sexy and it's okay to have disembodied, you know, female statues, body parts. Right. I mean, maybe you could have throw a male one in there, but you know, you're not obligated to, I mean, mm. I, I don't think that we want to live in that world, but I do sense it's just a number of dots that you can kind of connect. And even the thing about womb envy, I'm kind of, I'm kind of bothered by, um, you know, I, you know, there, there is a way in which it's, it's easy to say that um, men have womb envy, but it's another thing to say that women are defined as uh, reproductive vessels. Um, you know, those are, those are sort of, a little close to each other sometimes yeah and even this idea that like wallace needs uh reproduction uh to occur you know that whole scene i find so ludicrous um you know the costs involved with uh biological reproduction are not small and if oh. you can build a replicant i'm not sure why like why would you want uh <laughs> you know female replicants who can reproduce i'm not sure that would be less expensive oh, no, than no, building well, new models more than that though it's 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 ridiculous because firstly it'd be like um he wants it you know we've got to build more so instead of him just build mm -hmm. the, his reasoning is in order to rebuild the world we need labor workforce that's his whole point is no great advancement has come without us um relying a on a, a slave workforce that's yeah. what he's trying to create right However, and he said, I can't manufacture enough. We need to be able to create, uh, reproduce, so I can reproduce this army, this this slave labor. Two problems with this, though. Firstly, you've got to graze that slave army, so you're not going to have a decent you know, slave labor for 20 years anyway. Mm -hmm. um, and it seems to me like you can produce a fully grown person. So I don't know why you're not just sort of like, instead of making soldiers and and... And this is sound, this is going to sound incredibly sexist, but instead of creating women, just make the same model over and over again. That's a strong builder. I don't, I don't see what the yeah, you know right. exactly. Or build a robot like there's tech that there's 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 you know other technologies to use. Right. It feels like a bizarre reasoning, but I get what they're yeah. trying to get at. But the other one is. If they can reproduce, I mean, I don't know if you'd use this model, but we've highlighted that there's pleasure models. You don't want mm -hmm. random pleasure models <laughs> getting pregnant. Like, that makes no sense. Right. No, um, they, and, and presumably they could control that. Don't release the ones with the wombs as, as pleasure models, yeah. right? But still, yeah, you're right about the inefficiency of 20 years of, you know, raising. I mean, also, you've, you know, presumably you've taken half of all of your, uh, at least, of all of your uh, replicants out of the business because they're pregnant for nine months. Like mm. this is mm. massively inefficient. Yeah. And your whole point of like, it doesn't even have to be builders. Like, okay, what do you need? You need people to harness raw materials and then you need people to build replicants, right? I know they're not building them um, nuts and bolts and gears and, you know, like they're not the seven dwarves, but <laughs> you know, 
you, you but there's you know what do you need you need a workforce to build stuff you know you need to train them in the competencies uh that they that they need to do that and you need raw materials replicants can do all of this already right yeah i mean so i really kind of resent the like i i always kind of resent stories about like um Oh, the secret biological thing that, you know, we can't duplicate, you know, whether it's love or, you know, birth. I mean, and, and it just it seems very. I'd almost go. I'd almost want this to go the other way as to mm. what I'd want. Wallace's motivation mm-hmm. to be almost the other way. I want to completely destroy the notion of, of reproduction. And because that's what I know, mm. that's what the police want. But there's like, but he's like, but I don't want it any loose ends of anybody knowing about this and that's why he's sending love out to to find it because yeah just from a commercial standpoint it doesn't make Mm -hmm. any sense but from like a this thing of evolution i know he wants to play god right and i get that there's the sort of like you know um this notion of the frankenstein and and you know this idea of playing god and all that kind of stuff and creating being able to create reproduction is is the is the true you know, creator. I don't just create Adam and Eve. I can then create Adam and Eve that can create Cain and Abel. Do you know what I mean? It's like mm-hmm. I can create right. things that. Uh, um, but other thing as well is like we've talked about this thing about this sort of idea of slave labor, which is what he obviously alludes to. Well, he doesn't allude to. He actually states outright. Um, is is this this thing of that that replicants are a slave workforce, and we've talked, we've said about how. Uh, Robin Wright's character treats Kay and and some other and, and it's said about in other for for others as well. Um, so there's clearly this whole thing around how you know minorities or sort of like you know certain cultures are treated lesser and treated as slaves and stuff like that, and it's it's a theme. But don't then tell me that you want to breed that <laughs> that slave people because that's sort of like you're also then we've also known that there's been a revolution. And so there's this mm-hmm. other there's this other revolution that's growing. I'm like, this feels like it should be building to something else. That yeah. But I'm like, it all feels a little bit too messy by the end of the film. Well, I you made me realize something was that it's that um, yeah. I mean, first of all, I have a lot of questions, right? Like, mm. why did only Ra- Rachel reproduce? Why is this the first replicant? Either ah, but she the was biological... the only no, no, because she was the first of her kind. Even Ty- Tyrell says that mm-hmm. in the first film, she's the yeah. first of her kind. She's... And we've we've lost the ability to make that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I mean, but it's like, what what is the magic microchip that you add that makes them able to reproduce? You know, like what what is the oh, it's the spoonful of sugar that you add, you know, as part of the mix of the organic replicant, that suddenly they've got wounds that work, right? I mean, I don't know. It just seems, it seems stupid to me. But but you made a, a point that made me think, like you said, it should be the opposite, right? And I thought, right, of course, because corporations try to control. And I think this should not be a metaphor for the wonders of birth, right? Which I want to be able to unleash. And then of course, who knows how replicants evolve, mm. you know, I now I can't control it. This should be a metaphor for planned obsolescence, which is yes. there in the original uh, concept of, you know, uh, limited lifespan, yes. right? So a corporation wants planned obsolescence, right? You're going to have to get a new iPhone every five years, you know? Um, you're going to have to get a new replicant every six years. You're going to have to, and they cannot give birth. A replicant has given birth, we need to make sure we shut this down. Exactly. And 100%. That, that 
technology cannot, that ability to make replicants who give birth can never be known to exist. Uh, yeah. Because people will realize they don't need to buy a new iPhone. The problem I find with this film, and this is something I was going to raise, and we're sort of getting to it now. In the first film, although we, we identify that, like, you know, uh, Press and Roy Batty and, and the other sort of escaped replicants look human are indistinguishable and you have to give them the point comp test and all this other stuff to just, you know, for the lack of empathy and all this other stuff, right? Almost indistinguishable. That's the point. More human than human, as they sort of say. Um, one, of the, one of the things is, though, that in that film, all replicants are considered. They're not allowed back on Earth. There's a reason for that and all this other stuff. But they're considered, they are considered second class. They are considered a product throughout by everybody. Um, Deckard, even, Deckard even struggles with this when his interaction with Rachel, excuse me, with Rachel. Yeah, everything he talks about, like when he, he sees the owl, or is it, you know, it's real, oh, it's top of the line. But they're always considered a product. And even Tyrell, when he talks to Roy Batty and stuff at the end, he talks about having made them, but he talks about it like as if a technician has created things. Like This idea of creation isn't godlike, it's, it's more technical than that that's sort of how it's sort of shown the problem i sort of have with with 2049 is and i know they want to have this sort of mystery of is k um human or not is he the child of rachel and deckard which is a bit of a coincidence that he's on this case but it's fine i'll give i'll give it that it's a mcguffin i'm willing to let go but my other problem is replicants in this 2049 world are too close to humans in the way that they are treated. There's no ghettoization. There's no sort of like, like, okay, we're going to say you mm. are, a, you are a, you are a blade runner. I and mean, you know, we know you, you have to do as you're told, but you, you then just go off and live in your apartment mm -hmm. with your Along Android with the humans, right? With it's the clearly humans. not an all replicants. Uh, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. You know, yeah, you know, you're right. You know, you think with your digital um, girlfriend, and you then talk about going away together and all sort of stuff. Like the one thing it bothers me is like why it should be he lives in a ghetto. Right. You you are allowed mm. out of this ghetto to work. And then when you are not working, you have to go back to this ghetto and there are curfews because that's how this replicant thing works. Is that's you mm -hmm. are permit you are permitted to work in this city because you live under these rules. And it kind of bothers me that he's just sort of freewheeling around the city or even around the country. Yeah, no, you're right about it, and I hadn't thought about that, but you're right. And that's my biggest problem with this film is like they they want to sort of have this thing of like, oh, they're so close to human, and like, yeah, but they shouldn't be, you know. Without wanting to sound, you know, you and I have, have when we did Red Dwarf, we said that thing of like with Crichton, they never let you forget, you know, he's part of the crew, and they'll say like he's part of the, mm -hmm. you know, uh, boys from the dwarf kind of thing, but like they keep coming back to this notion of him being a droid that's mm -hmm. a big part of the jokes whether he's going to be replaced or he's lost you know he's getting old oh, yeah. he's losing parts and so and on and he's so still forth. subservient to them and and he's still yeah. subservient like it's never um it, that's always a part of the the makeup of that and it should be in this world that replicants mm -hmm. because all of a sudden you've just got good looking actors running around going that one's a replicant are you sure i'm not really sure but i'm going to chase them down and it's just sort of like it, it you know it should feel you should feel for K being being a subjugated in the same way 
you sh- you know you should parallel him with uh Sapper Morton in the in the start of the film like there should be that thing of like oh, I'm just doing my job kind of thing like I you know I just do this because I'm told to like I just feel there's an element there that's missing that should feel like he's reluctantly doing all this stuff because it's what his role is mm-hmm. and then when he when he when he decides or when he thinks he may be the child this half human half replicant child then oh, actually can I break out of my mold just like Joy is given this ability to roam as he got that thing, but it, it never feels like that because he's never really subjugated. He might as well be human for all, you know. Mm-hmm. He's got an ex- he's, he's he's got an extended life. He can do all this other stuff. He has to eat. It just I don't know. Yeah, well, I think that you know the idea is that just like in the first Blade Runner, that really there's not a lot that separate that se- separates replicants from humans. Mm. That's true. You know, that's part of the point of the film. Um, but on the other hand, um, you know, you're, so you're they, right. They, 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 yeah. you, and you can still feel for um, replicants who have to live in a ghetto, right? Mm-hmm. And you don't need a lot of heavy-handed, like, you know, get back in there, replicant, you know, kind of like heavy-handed stuff to no. get the point like, oh, right, they're second-class citizens. And that stuff is in here anyway. Um. Yeah, it's just uh, it's a little strange. I, I I do agree with your point. Yeah, and that's just, yeah, that's the thing. That was one of my points, really. I just wanted to hit on that. Um, we are looking at time. I'm going. We've got sort of you know it's about ten minutes left, ten fifty minutes left. But one thing I wanted to then touch on then was the relationships between. Uh, well, there's two things I wanted to touch on. The first was the, was was the relationships between the characters, and we mentioned sort of joy. Um. And her relationship, because mm-hmm. there is the question. Oh, it's, it's it's presented, and it's not really given an answer. It's 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 the end of it is used as a bit of a kick K while he's down kind of moment. Um, but the relationship between Joy and K, mm-hmm. yes, she's an AI and she's a hologram, but is everything she does for him programmed? So when she does sort of you know defend him and she bigs him up and she even says to him at the end, "I love you," before she's you know, killed. And I'm not saying killed when she before she is destroyed. Um, is that well, you said killed for a reason. <laughs> well exactly, yeah. because you feel yeah. for the character. Like she's presented as as, you know, I and one of the things I love is is that like it's not it's subtle in the way she's presented as a hologram is that she seems solid, but then if you watch the film carefully, if there's a light source behind mm. her, oh yeah. It shows through. And I think it's really it's brilliantly well, done. Oh it's oh yeah excellently done and then but there's the scenes where she sort of she um maps with the the prostitute and they you know obviously she's sort of she's arranged that and then she says and then obviously later on when he's had the shit kicked out of him and he meets with the sort of the big advertisement and it just says i love you or something what does it say it says i think does it say i love you or it says something that she said yeah. um it matches her dialogue and there's that moment of him going like it's just a program like you know or was she legit or was it a legit relationship between a replicant and an AI well, person? What, what does it mean to be legitimate? I mean, that's a, that's the whole concept of the franchise, right? Like what yeah, does it mean to that's, be that's human? The, well, that's my question um, is, yeah, is that because we, we, I mean, we already we, have relationships with AI and chatbot and, you know, yeah, not that kind of relationship. Well, I don't at least I'm, I'm uh, well, yeah, well, maybe, <laughs> maybe I do. I don't know. 
Um, but my point is that what's what I think is clever, and I do like it for this part of the film, is like, as you said, the death of Joy it is impactful. Like, you're like, oh, oh, yeah. Basically, they've turned a light bulb off for all intent and purposes. But there's a thought process. There's obviously a, a personality and stuff behind it. Um, and it is it is impactful. But then you do remember, this is a replicant Blade Runner and mm-hmm. an AI woman that is carried around in a, in a light stick. Um, it's, um, yeah, I don't know. It, it, it's clever because it makes you feel for them. Like you feel that relationship right. is real. But like then you're sort of led to believe, well, this is an AI and a, and a, a replicant. I don't know. It's, it's an interesting... Well, one. I think you're, you're left to wonder about it. I, I do love that relationship. Mm. You know, and, you know, I... Look, I mean, if you kill a human, you're turning off a light bulb too, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. I mean, fair. Um, <laughs> so, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it's meant to be ambiguous. I think mm. you're meant to ask exactly these questions. Um, but don't forget the other function of joy in the plot, which is to say you're special yeah. and to encourage him down that path, um, you know, to believing that he is the daughter, the daughter of Deckard and Rachel. Mm. Um, and that's part of why, you know, uh, you know, that seems to be confirmed in what I have called, uh, you know, repeatedly, you know, there are a lot of scenes in movies where it's like, oh, nothing's true or, oh, I'm somebody other than I think. I don't know that I've ever seen one as effective as him holding that uh, horse. Horse, yeah. Right. With the Gosling's very understated performance of just sort of like, my, oh, my God, this is it's real. All these implanted memories are real. Um, that scene in particular really devastated me in theaters, and I thought, I don't think I've ever seen this. Done when he goes, well. when he goes back to the orphanage in the trash mm-hmm. area, and he finds the horse inside the um, the grate that he played or was placed there, sort of like you know, in memory. Yeah, well, well, no, he he remembers it being placed there, but it obviously mm-hmm. was really placed there um, because it, there's there's two parts to that there's two scenes and there's the moment where he sees it and it's got the date on the bottom which is obviously the the, the date. date on the tree yeah the date on the tree and he's yeah. obviously remembered that date <clears throat> um but then there's also a really well done moment which obviously pays off at the end um when you see is when he goes back to um see the doctor in the in the bubble uh, who lives mm-hmm. who lives in the office, and she he shows her the memory and her response is, this is a lived memory. Like, this is mm-hmm. a real memory. And you don't really get to see her face, but you hear her dialogue, and she sort of, like, um, stutters through it. And he just reacts. Bit, yeah. Yeah, but he sort of reacts and sort of, like, he's like, God damn it! And sort of, like, you know, because he's been lied to, or he feels like he's been lied to his whole life. But then when you see it flipped around, and you you actually see her response at the end, and you realise she's watching her own memories back, is she? Oh so, yeah, so, no, I, yeah. Oh, Sorry, really? go ahead. So, yeah. so I have always felt about this movie. I am not convinced of an awful lot of what happens in this movie. Okay. Um, so you know, I mean, there's. Uh, we should also, I mean, well, we should mention a few things. But I have never been convinced about this whole baited switch. Like, I think it works. I admire that the films don't make the male protagonist, you know, the chosen one, a la Mm. The Matrix and Neo and all this stuff, you know. But what do we really have as evidence? 
I, first of all, I don't buy this, like, you use your own memories and just put it in stuff. I don't think that makes any sense. I think it's dumb. But it's um, used, it's, in the, it's from the first film. It's, state, it's, it's in the first yeah. film. I know it doesn't, okay. make, it doesn't work there either, greatly, yeah. But, but yeah. Okay, fair, fair enough. Good point. Um, but what do we really have to, I mean, first of all, I think when you establish in a movie that, or in a narrative that uh, X is the case, and then you say, why, aha, X really isn't the case. It runs the risk of asking people, well, what was the evidence for X? Usually the first time you do this, people will be satisfied in that world that you've taken somebody's word for it, right? And usually it's just like, oh, you know, uh, an alien invasion is coming, right? Well, really, how do you know this? Well, Bob told me so on his spaceship, right? Yeah. You know, usually we go along with it because we think that's part of the universe, right? Um, and so this very carefully builds up X, which is he's he, got these memories. These memories are real. You know, it, it's really a haunting, amazing story to be like, oh, my God, why are those numbers on the tree the date that I remember from my memories? Mm. Like. I don't know how to connect these two, but like that is one hell of a coincidence. This is a really haunting, compelling, effective story. Hmm. And then when you switch up, you know, X to Y, right? Um, yeah, usually we the audience will just accept X. And when you switch it, you have to really provide evidence for why it's really switched. Right? Yeah, stronger like, evidence look. as to why it's Y. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, so here, all the evidence for X is really strong. And all the evidence for why is really scant. It is ultimately two things. It is the leader of this revolutionary party that goes, no, it was a girl. I delivered her myself. I swear to you, golly gee, right? There's really, that's not really a lot of evidence, especially compared to what we've seen in X in the first one. And then, as you say, it seems as if it's her memory. There's one other uh, bit of evidence. There is one other okay. piece of evidence, which is, it is stated by somebody else in fact it's stated by k when during his investigation when he looks at these things he says that there was a boy and a girl entered the orphanage at the same time and the boy disappears or went off into this thing but the girl uh also they well they disappeared into the system but the girl had a genetic disorder and it was it, it was anticipated that she wouldn't live long so there's also presented this so that you are actually presented with two alternatives, a boy right. and a girl. And you mm -hmm. anticipate you, you're sort of led to believe and told that Kay was the boy at this orphanage, because he goes, and the pages have been ripped out of the book when he goes to see the thing, so he can't establish it. Uh and you, you believe that obviously yeah. it was either um not deck. It was it was someone like Sapper Morton or somebody else that's done that. Someone's come right. there to remove those pages. And the girl is is the doctor who creates the memories. That's what you sort of. That, so you've there are two set up, but the the, the whole well, thing rests on that one memory of that child that pl hides the horse and has the crap kicked mm -hmm. out of them. But the thing is, Kay isn't that boy either. Right. Well, that's he, what he was supposed to. Well, yeah. he was created later. He was built later on when they had these memories implanted by the doctor. So Kay's only probably like two or three years old and then okay. has these are the memories but again supposedly right mm. so like so like okay you're right you're right I, that's a good point i forgot this thing about the genetic you know thing but
but part of that, the point of that sequence is also that supposedly, and it's kind of confusing, like only one of them really lived and the other yes. is a fake record that has been put in. Why? Why did you put in a fake record for... To hide her. So, so you put in, you invented a twin that died, but they could still find the record of the girl. You haven't hidden her at all by saying no. she had... You know what I'm saying? This makes no sense to me. Oh, no, I, I know what you're saying. It's confused. It's a bit like... It's a, it's not a great plan, because I'm not entirely sure why Deckard <laughs> couldn't see her from birth either. Like, his plan was to leave, and you're like, well, I don't get that. Like, why could she not go with you? Yeah. But, like, um, yeah, it's... Um, they're trying to hide her from... Mm -hmm. um, but what, what I think is interesting is... Because it's not entirely clear who she's hidden from until the end. All right, and to this is how maybe this is to me. So the way I take it is, they knew because um, Sapper Morton knew where she was. Right, he's the one that obviously delivered her, and he's obviously been like. So I feel like he's been some sort of guardian angel, which is what sort of alluded to in his um, nowhere to run in the short. Like it shows how he looks after people. He's looking after that girl in that. He gives her a book. Like he's a guardian angel kind of figure. All right, so he knows some of this stuff. Like she was delivered to this place where she can be protected inside this bubble environment and be was raised and whatever. Okay. So someone knows she's there. I don't think she's not just being protected from Wallace, as in we need to know I want to see her DNA so I can see how to reproduce. I think she's being protected from the revolution as well. Mm. Like they're like, no, we just don't want her involved at all because neither side is right. We don't want to kick off. I don't want her to become like the messiah for some replicant revolution. And we don't want her to be cut up and, and dissected for by Wallace. Like she just needs to live. And that mm -hmm. feels like the point of this thing of like the confusion is almost there mm. to sort of cause, because the, the revolution can't find her either. Well, and the revolution says that that leader explicitly says that she will lead the revolution, right? Like she's the messiah. Figure, exactly. Yeah. Very silly. Yeah. And that's the, that's what they're trying to build to. But I think the whole point is like the 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 plan was from Deckard and Rachel and and you know whoever was the original because like you said the plan was them to leave was to have her hidden so she could just live a life. But she had this genetic disorder which has led her to be in that that bubble. So she couldn't even lead the revolution if she wanted. To be perfectly honest. So so let me let me present an alter a couple alternate theories. Mm -hmm. One is Kay absolutely is the child. He's being lied to by the leader of the revolution. Yeah. And the doctor is a replicant. And they did falsify the records. Uh, and in order to confuse them, they, you know, invented this genetic disorder thing, which would then be a sign. Oh, look, that's the real one. Mm -hmm. You know, um, so that's per that's as likely as what the conventional interpretation that you're supposed to believe yeah. in the movie that she's actually. The second thing is. What if it was actually twins and that wasn't done to hide and they both are and and uh, Deckard is going inside to say hello to his child in that moving last mm. Im image of like reaching out to the other. Um, but unbeknownst to him, his son is dying on the steps outside unattended. I find all three of these just equally plausible. Yeah. Personally. Uh, no, and I get you saying that you could. And they all do work. And there is evidence, I suppose, you could easily plot and build that from, from each of them, which would be kind of cool, actually. Um, question, then, in, in, on that point, because I think you're right, and I think I'm I think I'm, I'm going to stick with my <laughs> interpretation, <laughs> but I see exactly what you're saying, and it's, it's entirely possible. 
But um, so K dying at the end. Um, you so you are, you think he does die on the steps of that building, and mm-hmm. that's the end of K. Yeah, I think that's the movie clearly wants yeah. to show that. Say that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's good. I think, that, that's... I think it is. A, I think it is a little ambiguous, but I think it, it's pretty clear he's dead. Yeah. yeah. No, that's good because I, I, I did read people were like, "No, he doesn't die," and there's this. And I'm just like, "No, no, no." I thought I was like, "No, he dies." The whole point of this is his last act is to deliver Deckard to his mm-hmm. daughter. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Um, I do think the ambiguity of who's really the the child or whatever mm. might be seen. I, I haven't read it except anywhere except in my brain, but I I do think it could be seen as the equivalent ambiguity of is that uh decker uh uh the replicant first one yeah yeah right which is because we are supposed to think (laughs) k is dying on the steps we are supposed to think he's dying on the steps he's accomplished his mission he Mm. can die knowing i did something um and that deckard goes inside not knowing is you know uh deliverer his savior has is dying on the steps right yeah uh but how much more Poignant is that if the savior could even still be a son. Anyway, yeah, I'll stop. No, it does. It no, it does. It makes sense. Um, just about this ending because we will sort of wrap up very, very quickly. Is no, I love the fact it's amb- there's ambiguity and it's a, it, and often that's the point of a mystery, isn't it? Like you followed one protagonist's um, journey through that mystery, but like you know, you could still unwrap those clues and find something different. You know, we always say about what happens next in these films mm-hmm. and stuff like. If this had just hung on for like you know two seconds more, and he, you know Harrison Ford's there, Deckard's putting his hand up to the to the thing, and she turns around and she's just like, "Who are you?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like, touching my window, like you know, sort of like it just it just it, it looks like an emotional ending, and it, it is, it's very well done. But yeah, like I, I do want to be like, how does that explanation go? And she's like, "I'm your father," you know, da da da. This is your true history, and she's like, "Yeah, you've got no evidence of this." <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah well i always wonder that about like the hidden identity you know <laughs> even in like greek plays i'm like yeah you know like this is it's like odysseus's scar in mm. uh the odyssey right like that's the identifier yeah i could easily see people being like i'm not convinced and i'm definitely not giving you your inheritance based on a scar okay yeah, yeah. um well and the other thing is i wonder if it cuts there because she's going to say yeah, actually, I don't know how to tell you this. I was the replicant, mm. you know. Uh, but yeah, definitely. Like, are you my father? What's your proof of this? What does she know? Does she really know, like, her mo- uh, anything about her mother? Does she? Does she? What does Has she? She know? looked into the records. Is it you know what what research has she done to try and find things out? Yeah, I think you know it's it it, it would be interesting to see beyond it. Um, but. Yeah, I don't know. It's just this, this, you know, there are flaws in this film and that sort of thing. I understand mm. it, um, but but anyway, and it brings to the end. Final thoughts then on uh, Blade Runner twenty forty nine. I mean, I still think it's a brilliant accomplishment. I still think it's a masterpiece. I don't know when we've had a sequel that's been, you know, this is one of the rare sequels that I think is better than the original, but that that was an impossible hill to climb, mm. right? We've gotten so many sequels of old stuff um, that isn't. I do want to say a couple couple quick things. I think Ryan Gosling, like, I've never been impressed by him. I'm blown away by him in this movie. Mm. Like, this is like, 
this, I don't know. I don't know how his career is ever going to, you know, <laughs> accomplish something that's just his performance. is so good in this. Um, and finally, apparently it was, uh, it's that Alcon entertainment whose logo you see at the front that owns the rights. Mm. So Warner brothers licenses it, but apparently Alcon entertainment is the one that has the, do Android stream electric sheep rights? Okay. So Alcon, Alcon, it's a little complex. Yeah. Yeah. Alcon, reach uh, out give to it, us. Give us, give us a call. <laughs> <laughs> we have ideas. Go listen to our Patreon. It'll, it'll only cost you five pound a month. I'm sure you can afford it. Um, throw us some of that Blade Runner money our way. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Um, I agree though. I have to say, I, I, I really enjoy this film. I think it's sort of, I love the fact it's not uh, scared to linger you know, on certain scenes on, you know, to enjoy not just the sort of the, the landscapes and the scenery, but like it allows emotions to settle in certain scenes and, you know, to be awkward. It's not just to punch through things as quickly as possible. Um, So when you do get like moments of violence and stuff or like moments of action, like you've had these quiet moments so they become quite, you know, there's a shockingness to them, you know, um, or a, you know, they come out of nowhere. And so I enjoy that. I think it's just really well made. I think that it's beautiful film. It's, this is one of those films. This is one of the films that like 4K Bigs TVs was made for, like, you know. Um, but also say the performances, you know, even Harrison Ford isn't just given his sort of like mumbling kind of thing. Like, you know, compare this to his performance in, um, I would say in the, uh, Star Wars, Indiana Jones, four. Yeah, yeah. Compare the yeah, exactly. Compare this to to, to uh, Crystal Skull or Force Awakens. Like he clearly has more time for doing this role, and and, and seems to give Deckard something more. Um, but again, like Ryan Gosling, I think is really good. I've seen him in a couple of things that I kind of like him in, but he's not. You know, he's a, he's a pretty boy. He's a he's a former Disney Musketeer, isn't he, and stuff. So, you know, he, but I think he's good in this. Um, I think Anna de, de Armas is really good. Robin Wright stands out. Um, I think, yeah, I think it's a really, really well acted film. And I just love the sort of some of the weirdness in this film as well. Um, and the fact that they are willing to go quite dark at times and stuff. Like they literally present the skull of Rachel at one point to Deckard. Like I'm like, whoa. <sighs> and then he shows him a, a new version of her. Like they're really trying to mess with his mind. Like it really does get to some odd and, you know, uh, dark places, but yeah, this is great, and I would, I would happily, I would love to see an expansion of this world, and I would love to see it expanded in, you know, with so many ideas off world, and just what happens beyond this, um, you know, in in um in this just this, this replicant world. If you want to do, if you want to go and listen to our full thoughts on how we would expand this world. Go check out the Patreon. I'm going to keep banging on about this. We talk about the the um, the three shorts, but we also cover off things like the, the little bits like the comics and just how we'd expand this world into a full shared universe kind of thing of all sort of multimedia things. Uh, so go check that out on our Patreon. The links are down below, but www.patreon.com slash 20cgmedia. Um, but yeah, there you go. More pops. I'm going to really keep pushing those pops for now. Um, mm -hmm. but yes, this has been really fun. Um, I've really enjoyed this one. Yeah, me too. Uh, some good discussion on this one, but we're almost at an end. We're almost at the end of now. We're, we're coming up to almost present day. 
the next episode is uh, Brandon Cronenberg, uh, son of, of David mm. Cronenberg, uh, Possessor from 2020. Um, and so, yeah, I haven't watched it yet. I've had it, I've had it sat on my... Um, I purchased it through Amazon a long, long time ago, and I've been waiting mm. to watch it, so I've not watched it yet. Um, but I'm really looking forward to talking about that in the next episode. Looking then, forward to it. Yeah, and that's it. That's the topper of season four. We'll obviously then do a I season know. a season review for the second half of the season. Um, Can you believe we made it through a 24 episode season? Yeah. How well, you know ambitious is that? We did 90 years of uh, cinema, sci-fi cinema, in this season. We started in 1913. We're going through to 2020. So. That's pretty impressive. That's a, that's a, that's a, I think, yeah, it's a good season. I look back on this season, there's some really good stuff mm. in there. So, um, absolutely exciting stuff. Well, and, and I do hope people check out the Patreon where we have wonderful suggestions like, um, you know, the 80s Blade Runner animated se- series that wasn't, you know, with like, uh, you know, poor animation. Uh, and I think <laughs> it, it should be titled, uh, you know, Blade Runner, the, the Deckard and Rachel Adventures, you know, and just begins with them in the, the further, car leaving the further like, adventures of Decker yes. and Rachel. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously with like the Ford Fairlane style logo with like a cursive 80s kind of thing. Um and it starts with them leaving in the car with a the backdrop being like a cityscape that looks like a planet of the apes kind of crazy city <laughs> that has no bearing on the movie. Um and then just in a morbid way can end with her giving birth and dying in the final yeah. episode. <laughs> In the meantime, uh, they make friends with a uh, with a a replicant dog that can talk, and they solve mm. crimes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Absolutely. So that's brilliant. Yeah. Uh, anyway, for now, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much uh, for listening along. But let us know what you think. Join us, you know, at Pod Time Space on Twitter. Um, but also, you can reach out to us in different ways. Um, and just let us know what are your thoughts on uh, Blade Runner twenty forty nine or Blade Runner or the whole you know wider universe. Uh, But for now, thank you very much for listening, and we shall see you on the next episode. Mm